Good morning, First Baptist Church of Greg Abels. I hope you're all having a wonderful week as always. Uh, know that we're praying for you. Um, for those who are unable to attend our weekly services, know that we miss you, we care about you, we'd love to hear from you, uh, and we are here for you. Uh, this morning, we again find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in verse 10 this morning, but we won't get past heaven. Uh, who wants to, right? Uh, we'll be looking at really just the first part of verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 1 in a sermon entitled, Waiting on Christ's Return. Waiting on Christ's Return. Let's go ahead and read verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians 1. We'll pray and we'll jump right in. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing over our service. Father, we do ask that you would help us. Lord, I... I believe that you've laid this um, on my heart this week, uh, specifically for this time that we face uh, in our country, in our day-to-day lives, a time of distress, a time of worry, a time where we really need to know how we wait for you. So Lord, would you align our hearts and our wills with your word? May we desire to see you above All else, and Father, as always, if there's anything that I say that does not um, find itself in line with your word, we pray that it would fall harmlessly by the wayside. But those things that I do say that are in accordance with your word, may they be taken as as authoritative, Lord, and as, uh, as help for the Christian to make them more into the image of your Son. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, if you're a Christian, you are waiting. Did you know that? If you are a Christian, then by definition, you are one who is waiting. Whether you recognize that or not, if you're a Christian, one of your primary occupations as a follower of Christ is to wait for God's Son from heaven. This is a fundamental aspect of being a follower of Jesus. You are waiting. We are waiting. As it says in our text, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So my question this morning for us is, how are we waiting? What does that actually look like? As many of you know, my daughter Addie is in a Lego phase. She loves to build Legos with her daddy. And when we order some in the mail, she gets the practice of waiting. Waiting with her looks like asking me every day, are our Legos here yet? Are the Legos here yet? When can we play with the Legos? And then if I tell her what day... Uh, they are supposed to arrive and that today is the day that the Legos are supposed to be here. Much of that day is spent in eager anticipation asking mommy over and over again, are they here yet? Are they here yet? Are they here yet? She is in eager anticipation of that package arriving. Is that our posture 
as we wait? What is our posture and what is it supposed to be as we wait? Well, I'd like to start with what I believe are are two very common misconceptions on waiting for God's Son and really how throughout church history we have conceived of this waiting in a wrong way. Here's the first misconception. It's what I call the fight method of waiting. The fight method of waiting, which is Jesus is waiting for us to establish an earthly kingdom before he returns. It's the idea that Jesus is waiting on us, his people, to build an earthly kingdom with our own hands before he returns. Some Christians believe that, that Jesus is actually waiting on us to build the kingdom, and then he'll return. They have it backwards. They think he's up there in heaven waiting for his people to faithfully establish an earthly kingdom, a literal, visible regime of geopolitical power and glory. This earthly kingdom will be brought about by the gradual success of the church and its mission in the world. This is one way of conceiving of our waiting. And this has been the most common misconception in my mind throughout church history. Christians have continued to ask the same questions that the disciples asked the Lord right before he ascended into heaven. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Specifically, many Christians have been tempted to believe that Christ's kingdom will actually take on this geopolitical form right now in this present age. But the history of Christianity in in Europe in many ways is one long example of this error. I don't know how much you know about church history and particularly Christian history, but after the legalization of Christian worship or Christianity by Constantine in, in 313 AD in the Edict of Milan, there was this combining of the church and state. It was gradual at first, but by the 8th century, you had the Pope actually seeking and selecting and blessing the emperor of the Christian kingdom. You'd have what is known as Christendom. Uh, with the Pope as supreme pontiff and the divinely appointed Christian king as emperor. This idea of Christ's kingdom being realized temporally through a geopolitical entity was almost unavoidable. You could see how people would muddy the waters between church and state. It's hard not to believe that Christ's kingdom was actually now here on the earth being taken by force. This was the idea of Christendom. And when I say Christendom, I'm I'm referring to that period of history when the Pope and a divinely appointed king jointly ruled over a specific region. But We ask the question, was Christendom really reflective of the reign of Christ? Was it? People were converted and baptized through military force. Church offices were filled by the biblically illiterate but politically influential. Wealth, power, and prestige were consolidated to the Pope. And under the Pope, armies were raised, then sent to fight for geographical land and to bathe themselves in the blood of the infidels. Immorality was common. Faithfulness was rare. Desire for biblical doctrine was rare. And paganism was running rampant. This does not sound like the kingdom of God, friends, nor does it accurately reflect the reign of Christ. Now, fast forward through many bloody years of inquisition and religious wars to the founding of New England. 
Even the Puritans, as great as they were, they struggled with this idea. They tended to entertain the same or similar misconception. In fact, in the early days of immigration to New England, the land was referred to as a present-day promised land. That's how they envisioned it. Thomas Morton, a minister and the founder of Quincy, Massachusetts, said of New England, I will now discover unto them a country whose endowments are by learned men allowed to stand in a parallel with the Israelites' Canaan. William Tress wrote that America would be the new Jerusalem. According to John Winthrop, New England was to be a city on a hill that all the nations would look to and see the glory of God displayed before them. The Puritans did not simply envision the churches of New England as a setting or example in the faithfulness and holiness, but New England itself as a new society was to be that city on a hill. So let's ask, what what came of that city on the hill that the Puritans envisioned and covenanted to build together? Well, Cotton Mather, a Puritan preacher, a little over a century later than the founding of New England, wrote this. He said, much more may we, the children of such fathers, lament our gradual degeneracy from the life and power of such fathers that was in them and the many provoking evils that are amongst us. For these evils have moved our God severely to witness against us. See, even then, as far as the church was concerned, it was at times rife with schisms, with heresies, and immorality. This is New England at the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century. So I've offered only a few examples, but these could be multiplied exponentially throughout church history about how this idea is a terrible misconception and error. Christians have turned waiting into just doing, wrongly believing that Christ's kingdom is of this world and that it will be a visible regime of geopolitical power and glory. But history bears witness to the illegitimacy of this belief, not to mention the scriptures, which we're going to turn to in a moment. So that's the first misconception, a, a fight method. We need to fight and win souls so we can, we can win souls by force, by military force, and we can take over this land and make a real physical geopolitical power and glory of God's kingdom here on earth. But a second misconception is actually an equal but opposite error of the first. The second misconception is what I would call Uh, The flight method of waiting. We are waiting for Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom when he returns. So this is the flight method. Uh, We're waiting for Jesus to come and establish an earthly kingdom when he returns. So instead of the misconception that we should build Christ's kingdom as a geopolitical reality right now before his return, uh, many believe we are waiting for Christ to establish a kingdom when he comes. And in the meantime, according to this view, things go from bad to worse. And they were only going to get worse still. And so the faithful should separate themselves completely and utterly from the world, from the kingdom of this world. And we all should straight up just prepare for the apocalypse. There are many examples throughout church history of this error. But what I find most interesting is that Christ, uh, from a Christ ascension until present day, listen to me, church, Almost every age, 
From the history of mankind, from Christ's ascension until this day, almost every age has offered their people good reason to believe that things have gotten so bad that Christ was going to return. Did you know that? Almost every age, some leaders have responded to the immorality, the schisms, the heresies in their own time with this idea of separatism, that we just need to seclude ourselves from all these things, and apocalyptic speculation, where we continue to see everything and view everything as a sign that the end is near, board up your houses, load up your guns, stock up on food, and wait. Their cry was, the end is near. Christ is about to return to subdue the nations and establish his earthly reign. Circle the wagons. Let's prepare for the end. In fact, friends, is that not what we see even now in this time in our own day? We've seen a resurgence in this perspective. In fact, D.L. Moody once said this, and I believe this really captures the general attitude born out of this misconception. He said, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said to me, Moody, save all you can. Ironically, both of these misconceptions, the first and the second, stem from the same error. They stem from the same error. What is that error? They are both born out of a tendency to reduce Christ's kingdom to a visible regime of geopolitical power and glory. Whether it's before Christ returns or after he returns, Christ's kingdom is reduced to that and that alone. The first error is that this will happen before Christ returns and it leads to an overly optimistic appraisal and the church's ability to be an influence in the nations. The second error, on the other hand, fails to recognize the kingdom's presence in this age currently. Because it's looking for a regime of earthly power and glory in the future. So, from this perspective, the world is wrecked. It's a lifeboat. The best we can do is just grab as many as we can and hunker down for the apocalypse. Two different misconceptions born out of the same fundamental error leading to two very different approaches to living in this present age. So, what does the Bible actually say about this? What does the Bible tell us is the biblical conception of how we wait for God's Son, which is what we need right now? What does the Bible say? I would argue that the fundamental grid that we've seen all this uh, and that we need to see all this through is the grid of the already and not yet. That is what we call uh, the fruitful friction. The method of waiting, that's the fruitful friction method of waiting. We are waiting in the already, and we are waiting for the not yet. I know that might sound a little bit confusing, so I'm going to attempt to explain that to you. We're waiting in the already, and we're waiting for the not yet. Both misconceptions reflect an imbalance in the already but not yet character of the kingdom of God. Those who attempt to build the kingdom of God through the fight method of waiting as a regime of geopolitical power and glory, they fail to understand the not yet part of the kingdom. That it has not yet come as a visible regime. 
But those who completely see the kingdom of Christ through the the flight method of waiting as a completely future regime of geopolitical power and glory fail to respect the already aspect of the kingdom of God. So let's consider the scriptures. The scriptures tell us that Christ's kingdom has already been inaugurated. Christ's kingdom has already been inaugurated. According to the scriptures, this is what God's word says. Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke chapter 17 verses 20 through 21 says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Friends, Christ is reigning now. That's what Jesus says. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, Christ has been seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places for above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. As as Christ told his disciples before his ascension at the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Christ is already reigning, friends. His kingdom is already advancing, so we don't need to build it, and we aren't simply waiting for it to build in the future either. It is descending from heaven as spiritually dead people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son from heaven. Christ has already disarmed principalities and powers. He's already made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Colossians 2.15 Christ has already bound the strong man. He's already looting his house. The devil is bound and captives are being set free through the gospel proclamation. Christ is already king and his kingdom has already been inaugurated. He is already reigning on high. Not only that, the Bible also tells us that not only has Christ's kingdom been inaugurated, but Christ's kingdom has not yet been consummated. See, that's the tension between the already and the not yet. That's the fruitful friction we've been talking about. Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated, but Christ's kingdom has not yet been consummated. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. In fact, in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 43, I encourage you to read that this week. Jesus gives multiple parables to illustrate the coming of the kingdom. And each one illustrates a specific point. The coming of the kingdom is very gradual. It's very slow. It's like someone sowing seed. Some of it grows and some of it doesn't. It's like a little yeast or a little leaven in a lump. It works its way, but slowly. It's like a small seed planted in the garden that becomes a huge plant. These are all gradual. They describe the gradual, even unlikely growth of the kingdom of God in this present age. So though Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, 
John writes that the whole world still lies in the power of the evil one. We have to live between those two uh, points of friction that Jesus has been given all authority over heaven and earth, and yet the world still lies in the power of the evil one. Both of those are true. The question is, do we live in the midst of that friction? Listen, even though Jesus has bound the strong man, even though Jesus has looted his house, Peter Peter still warns us that the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. The kingdom of Christ is advancing, but it's not a visible regime of power and glory. The visible kingdoms belong to the Antichrist. The kingdom of God belongs to Christ. And so there it is. The scriptures give us this this friction. This is what they give us. The kingdom is already present as Christ reigns in grace through his spirit and through his word. But it has not yet been consummated as it will when he returns. So, we wait. We wait on God's son from heaven. And friends, we live in the tension and the friction of those two kingdoms, these two ages, the present evil age and the future age when Christ will have done away with all of the evil that stands in our way. These ages exist in two parallel, simultaneous realities. The kingdom of God advancing in the midst of the kingdom of Satan like leaven in dough. There is so much tension in the biblical perspective. And don't you feel that? The gospel of grace, it is already liberating captives. The Holy Spirit is already recreating sinners. Christ is already reigning from heaven, but Christ is not yet honored by all. The Holy Spirit is not yet obeyed by all. The gospel of grace is not yet believed by all. The tension will not be relieved until Christ returns. Uh, Michael Horton writes, referring to this age we live in, he says, It is a period in which the kingdom has been inaugurated by Christ's earthly ministry, empowered by the Spirit, advanced through the witness of, to the gospel, consistently opposed by the world, even to the point of great tribulation for the saints. You see, the very victory of Christ in the midst of the nation brings greater tribulation. It's not the advance of one and the decrease of the other, both increase side by side. Greater tribulation and greater victory through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not attempting to establish a visible kingdom of geopolitical power and glory here in the United States or anywhere else. But nor are we waiting like people stranded in a lifeboat. Friends, our king is reigning by his grace, by his word, by his spirit now. The kingdom of God is advancing, but quite often it's advancing through trials, through tribulation, through persecution, and even martyrdom. This is no less true in the Middle East than it is right here. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we wait for God's son from heaven. And so let's apply this to where we're at right now. Let's ask, what is our hope in the end? What do we do while we wait? How do we apply this? If 
if we are going to avoid these two misconceptions, but, but first what I want to do is I want to state the danger of those two misconceptions. These are two dangers each attached to the two misconceptions that we have. The first danger is this. There is a danger of believing that we can transform the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of Christ. There's a danger in believing that with our own hands, we can transform the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of Christ. We, we desperately want to minimize the words of Jesus who said, if the world hated me, it will hate you also. He means the world we live in as much as he meant the first century world, by the way, that his disciples lived in. See, friends, let's be honest, many believe that the United States was once a Christian nation as though it was the kingdom of Christ. It's simply not the case. It's not. Read your history. We tend to talk like New England really was the New Jerusalem and that Christ's millennial reign began at the signing of the Constitution. And I am persuaded that this false idea of the United States, it feeds our zeal to see the U.S. return to its former power and glory as God's chosen nation. Christian, hear me. The United States has never, ever, ever, ever been the kingdom of Christ. It hasn't. Never. It has always been a visible regime of geopolitical power and glory that belongs to the kingdom of this world, not to the kingdom of Christ. So listen to me, don't be shocked at what you currently see. As we look at our culture, we should not be shocked. The kingdoms of men will continue to rebel against God's son from heaven until he returns. And listen, faithful students of their Bibles are not shocked and dismayed at what we see. Nor do we believe that the right presidential candidate or the new Supreme Court justices will usher in the kingdom of Christ. No, it's not going to happen. Christian, the disobedience that we're witnessing today, it is not new. <laughs> As much as it may shock us, it, it's not. It's not new. Things are much different than the way they were in Rome or the Dark Ages or the, even in England under the reign of Bloody Mary or even in New England. Listen, please. Our greatest need is not better politicians. Our greatest need is God's Son from heaven. We desperately need God's Son from heaven to return. We need the King to consummate the kingdom. That is what we need. And we need to pray towards that end. We need to long for that end. So there's a real danger in thinking that we can transform the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of Christ. But there's a second danger. That's the danger of thinking that we can hide from this world because Christ will come any day. That we can hide from this world because Christ will come any day. Listen carefully. I believe that Christ will come soon. I do. But friends, can I tell you why I believe Christ will come soon? It's just because I long for him to come soon. If, I, if I'm honest, that's why. I, I'm like my daughter looking out the window every chance I get. Asking my father in heaven every day, Lord, are you coming today? Lord, are you coming today? Please come today. Because I long for my king to return and establish his kingdom. 
But church family, do you realize how many saints throughout the ages have held to that exact same conviction? They're with the Lord now, but the Lord is not here yet. Often they were convinced, that is the saints of old, that Christ would return precisely because the times had gotten so bad. A Cotton Mather, the New England Puritan pastor I mentioned earlier, taught the Antichrist would be defeated in 1697. And listen, this is not a fanatic. A Cotton Mather, I believe, was a, was a godly Puritan pastor, but he taught that the Antichrist would be defeated in 1697 and the millennium would then be ushered in. Listen, if Jesus told us that the world hated him, it will also hate us, but he did not tell us that so we would abandon the world. Jesus said we are to be in the world, not of it. And so in Jesus' parable about being ready in Matthew 24, for instance, we find the faithful and the unfaithful standing side by side in the same field. In Matthew 25, we find the faithful virgins asleep with the unfaithful virgins. We find them together because their readiness does not depend on the separation from the world in the separatist sense. We are separated from the world because of the work of Jesus Christ in us by his spirit and by his word. But that doesn't mean we've got to quit our jobs, buy 40 acres, and stock up on our guns. We don't have to abandon the nation. We don't have to abandon the United States of America because it's the place that God has put us. And so let's ask, how then shall we wait? What is the biblical way to wait for God's son? That's the question. Well, I believe the reformers were right about this. I believe the biblical way to wait for God's son is that we shall live as citizens of two kingdoms. That's what we do. We live as citizens of two kingdoms. Believers have lived throughout the centuries under various secular regimes. Now listen, some have been friendlier to our Christian aspirations and hopes than others have. But none have actually been the kingdom of God on earth. Instead, the kingdom of God has been growing all this time almost imperceptibly amidst these earthly kingdoms. Slowly, steadily, like a tree growing in a garden or like a leaven spreading through a lump of dough. We therefore, Christians, need to live as citizens of two kingdoms. We need to pray for the good of the secular regime in which we find ourselves living. We need to pray for the good of the United States of America. But friends, we're, we're like the Jews in Babylon who have been exiled to Babylon. We're not commanded to make Babylon Israel. Nor are we commanded to flee from Babylon and go to another place. Instead, as we read in Jeremiah 29, 5-7, we are to build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husband so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. As John Calvin counseled, it makes no difference what your condition among men be or under what nation's laws you live since the kingdom of Christ does not at all consist of those things. We must live as citizens of two kingdoms, each with its own distinct sources, ends, and means. We participate in the kingdom of God through the church, 
Christ rules over his people by his grace, by his word, by his spirit. And our membership in the kingdom of God liberates us to live for the kingdom of this, not in the kingdom of this world, for the glory of Christ. We don't have to build a visible regime of geopolitical power and glory, nor do we have to escape from the kingdom of this world. We are called to wait for God's son from heaven as we live in the kingdom of this world. We live through our secular occupations. We live in our secular relationships. We work to influence those things for the glory of Christ and for the good of our families. So yes, we pray for our president. We serve our communities. We love our neighbors. We're not optimistic for the wrong reasons, nor are we pessimistic for the wrong reasons. So is this how we're waiting right now? Or are we so overwhelmed by what we see in the news that, friends, we're ready to close up the shutters, load the guns, and prepare for the end? Listen, the Lord may come tomorrow, or he may come a long, long, long time after you are gone. He may come long, long after your children are gone. And, you know, this really hit home for me in what we see today. Friends, are, are we preparing our children to live in a culture that may not accept them and yet understanding that this is where God has put them? That they are going to have to live as a citizen of the United States in the future. Are we preparing them for that? See, we need to learn how to love, live in the world in such a way that we're promoting uh, hopeful and responsible activity in the midst of the nation that the Lord has placed us while avoiding this, this dangerous utopian idea of believing that humanity can design and build the kingdom of God by themselves. It will not happen. So it's not despair, but it's hopeful expectation because Christ is reigning now and will soon return. And yet, it's also not naive, but it's being aware that we live in the midst of the kingdoms of this world even while we wait for the consummation of the kingdom of God when his son returns. That is where we are. That is how we wait. So, so let's examine that in light of our culture today. Is that how we're waiting? Are we living as two citizens? Are we hopeful expectation for Christ to build his kingdom here on earth, a spiritual kingdom as he conquers hearts? And yet, yet are we being far from naive and just aware that, that things that are going on around us are things that, that happen to believers Persecution happens because it's the result of the kingdoms of this world living out what they are, kingdoms under the domain of the evil one. So we live in these two realities. It's hard, isn't it? You can see why it's so difficult for us to just want to pick one or the other, but we must live in the friction of these two things. We must live in the tension of the kingdom of God being already and not yet. And friends, the good news is we don't have to do this alone. We have a church family here that helps us understand these things, that helps us to respond with, uh, with not some idea that we need to fight, 
in the sense of building the kingdom of God with our own hands and not the sense that we just need to flight. We need to take flight and go live in a bunker somewhere. But an understanding that we need to live as two citizens, citizens that are first citizens of heaven that take place in the proclamation of the gospel to build the kingdoms of, of God through his spirit, through his word and by his grace. And we're also citizens of this world living in this world, looking for opportunities to love our communities, to serve in the nation God has placed us in, and to bring honor and glory to the kingdom of Christ. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray that, we long for that. But until he does, we wait. We wait on God's Son from heaven. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, this is our prayer, Lord. Help us for each of us that are tempted in one direction or the other. Father, if we want to be overly optimistic or to pine away, longing for some glory days that have passed or believing, Father, that just the right presidential candidate or the right political party can bring about what only Christ can bring about in this world. Father, others of us are tempted to, to hide and to run and to disengage, to unplug from the place that you have put us. Instead, will you help us to engage a culture and a society, Lord, in a way that honor and glorifies you, that reveals our optimistic trust that Christ indeed will return. The question is, will we be found faithful in that day? Lord, by your grace, I pray that it will be so. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church family, again, this is an invitation primarily for the church. Um, and so if, if you struggle with this, you have any questions or thoughts, I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to encourage you any way I can. And of course, if you're listening to this and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you still belong solely to the kingdom of this world. And that's not good news. And I pray uh, by understanding what Christ has done on the cross and taking your sin uh, and, and, and taking God's wrath upon himself so that you may be saved, you would repent and you trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved this morning. Uh, however we can help you, we're here. Please call us, text us, come see us, whatever you need to do, and we'd be happy to help you any way we can. We love you, church family. God bless you.